It's the first Monday of the month, and Bonnie and I are tackling your questions today on coaching, accountability, and wisdom. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 187. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. This is a weekly show to help leaders improve their communication, strategy, coaching, productivity, and personal mastery. And once a month, the first Monday of the month, we open up the lines to your questions, and I almost always uh, ask Bonnie to join me, Bonnie Stahoviak, my wife, and uh, business professor extraordinaire and also <laughs> what would be another thing i could say about you past executive leader in corporate america officer of a company you have many you have worn many hats throughout your career i have and lots of wise hats i have so many so many people email me and they're like the, the show bonnie's wisdom is so helpful so i'm always glad you come here every month thank you so much well i'm i would say i'm glad to be here but i feel like some of these questions are once again going to be a challenge but we're always up for a challenge we hopefully never seem like we have all the answers because today we're certainly not going to we're going to do our best yeah, and I, I always, I, th I think of these questions and I, I hope that we can just get people thinking about some different ways to approach things. Because like you said, we definitely don't have all the answers on these, but hopefully we we'll get you started on thinking about some resources and uh, just thinking about things in some different ways. So let's jump right in here. The first question here is from Jignesh. And he says, I've been on a leadership course um, in 2012, or he had been to a leadership a leadership course in 2012, I guess, uh, through the Myers-Briggs test, I've learned about my personality type and have received feedback uh, comparison from some of the world's most famous leaders. I've also recently read Simon Sinek's book, Start With Why. My assessment about myself has been that I'm an introvert. I love working on my own. I realize that leaders need to challenge their own comfort zone. And for me, this would be to try communicating my ideas and practicing my leadership skill by interacting with others. Knowing the fact that I'm an introvert, I'm not sure how to strike up a conversation and get maximum the maximum out of my one-on-one -on -one meetings with strangers and LinkedIn connections. I really appreciate receiving some advice or ideas on how to strike an impactful conversation. Well, uh, this is certainly something I've done a lot of thinking about as someone who also identifies themselves as having a preference for introversion. Um, but uh, before I launch into some ideas here. Bonnie, anything that you want to throw in uh, that'd be helpful for him to be thinking about? Well, for me, I think about you, you mentioned LinkedIn and strangers that you don't know on LinkedIn. And I would guide you against doing that. I think that people don't really use that tool much for just almost like it was a professional, non-romantic dating service kind of thing where we, we just hi, I wanted to strike up a conversation on LinkedIn. It, that doesn't tend to be what that particular tool is for. You might strike up a conversation with a stranger about a potential job opportunity. I've had, in fact, most recently, a recruiter for one of our payroll processing companies in the US that's one of the largest ones here got in touch with me and said, I noticed that you teach a sales class. Do you have any recent graduates that might be good for positions I'm recruiting? That's the kind of more... 
I, I didn't know that person beforehand. I wasn't connected to them beforehand that I see happening on LinkedIn that has value, but just more striking up general conversations. I don't see that as the right tool for that for me. The right tool for that for me would be really Twitter. And I would encourage you to start, if you're not already on Twitter, start striking up those conversations on Twitter and engaging that way. And one of the best ways to do that is to become really good at curating. And I've found for myself, I've, I've quote unquote met many strangers on Twitter who are passionate about the same things that I am, who add a lot of value to what it is that I do. And it's just a great way to engage in Twitter. I recently had a podcast guest who said, Twitter is not about the content. It's about the conversation. Mm. A guy who wrote the book, Learning with Ease. And his name is Stephen Wheeler. And I thought that was a really great way of describing the value of Twitter. I don't see LinkedIn being as much about the conversation as I do a tool like Twitter. I second that on Twitter. If you're going to use a social network, that's the one to do for introductions and practicing that. Although I would go a step further and say, since you mentioned conversations with one-on-ones and, and meetings, I would I would really look for your opportunity first here probably to do even more of this in person is to challenge yourself to reach out and to build connections with people one-on-one in the physical world. And so and I I think you can do this this is the beauty of this skill and learning this is you can do this in all kinds of different places. So you could do this in the workplace, but you can also do this going shopping at the grocery store. You could do this on the weekend, running into someone at a at an event. You can do this in your religious community. There's so many opportunities on a daily basis to engage with someone and to practice on this skill that is fairly low risk. And you can get a lot of practice. And, and here's the thing, build your comfort and your confidence of being able to engage and speak with others. And introverts, while they have more of a preference of getting energized internally, also can be amazing conversationalists because they do really want, they really can focus well on a conversation and engage with people. And some of the best conversationalists I know and people who do this well are do have a preference for introversion. So I think that I would challenge you to, to look for the opportunities and even challenge yourself once a day to reach out to someone and to strike up a conversation regardless of where it is, because that'll give you the confidence to start to do that in all the other venues that you want to do that. And if you're looking for a roadmap on how to do that, I also have some uh, roadmaps that'll be really helpful to you uh, in doing this, Jignesh. And the Carnegie Coach Show, some of you have heard me talk about this before that I air for the Dale Carnegie Organization on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. We've done a number of episodes on this, on how to strike up a conversation and also how to engage someone when you begin working with them for the first time. And we've gone into great depth on that and in fact done demos on the podcast of how to have conversations and the roadmaps to follow. So I'm going to put the links. There's six episodes from that podcast that would be really helpful to you and others who are looking for a roadmap on how to do this. I'm going to put the links in the show notes. So go to coachingforleaders.com slash 187 and you can uh, grab all those there. Bonnie, anything else we should say about this? All right. So let's uh, move on to the next question. The next question here is from Willie. Willie says, I value wisdom over rules, but wisdom doesn't scale well. Our director wants a more consistent experience for our customers. Rules are the traditional method to accomplish consistency, but we can't make a rule for every scenario because each scenario is different. We do have guidelines in place, which cover the vast majority of cases, 
but it seems like every time an exception occurs, the natural opinion across the organization is that we need to figure out a way to address the exception in the process. Is it okay for an exception just to be an exception? Well, I tend to be right there with you, Willie, in the not being a huge fan of all the rules and being a really big fan of the big picture, what it is that we're trying to accomplish. I've always admired companies like Nordstrom, companies like the Ritz-Carlton, who have at the very root of all of their rules, of all of their procedures, before we even get to that, they have the root of customers being the central focus. And it wouldn't make sense for every organization's strategy to be customers at that level of superiority. I I think about companies that are by their very nature more transactional. It's just not going to be feasible to have that, that type of thing. But I think what you're really expressing when I look at your message is just more of a connection with what is that big picture? What is that under under everything else, under every rule, under every exception to every rule, what is it that guides us? And I I would be curious as to how much your company has really explored your mission and your values that can really help bridge that divide between policies and what actually happens in the organization. One thing that I just came to mind is it's hard not knowing what kind of organization you are, but when we're talking about, about, rules and and having to process things, sometimes a technology tool can help. There's a, a company, this is just an example of one, but Zendesk does the, the help desk for a lot of companies and organizations. And that way we can have it less about a database of rules, but more about a database of how we've handled things in the past and building that knowledge base. Because especially when there are many exceptions being made, I always want to go back and, well, why is the first rule there in the first place that we're making an exception to? So if we can get a, a lot more documenting how we've handled things and, and what situations have warranted what, that at least could have you be able to start to see where there are patterns. And and Willie, that might help build your confidence to say, oh, we really do actually need a rule for this because now it's come up 10 times in the last month. It's just going to make a lot more sense if people are trained and it's documented how to handle it, or it only came up once in the last month. It's probably not going to come up again. We need to just let that one fade by, but we still have it in our database somewhere tracked in case we do start to see that trend. Mm, I love the idea of tracking. I hadn't thought about that. And um, I'm, I'm in agreement with Bonnie. I think that there are times that there can just be exceptions. And I I think back to, and I, I think I had already emailed Willie this um, I think back to a past guest who was on the show, and that be- guest is Barry Schwartz. He was on episode 92, and we talked about how to tap into your practical wisdom. For those who are running into this situation, I would really encourage you to check out that episode and also to check out Barry Schwartz's TED Talk on this topic. Um, he just really, he has, his, he's really dedicated his professional career as a professor um, on the East Coast of the States here. He's dedicated his professional career to really look at how people handle wisdom and making decisions like this of how do people process exception situations. And he's really done some fabulous thinking on it. And one of his kind of central thoughts on this is that there, there need to be rules and incentives in organizations for sure, but that tends to be the thing that everyone defaults to whenever there's a problem or a or or a situation that comes up is either we need more rules or we need more incentives. And it's interesting, his TED Talk, Bonnie, was recorded in 2009 in the middle of the financial crisis that was going on. And it's interesting, now I, I rewatched it um, 
recently. It's interesting now looking back on that, just talking about his how he frames rules and incentives. And part of what he says is, yes, you have to have that, but but excessive amounts of rules and incentives prevent the disasters, but they breed mediocrity too. You never really you never really end up getting to um, serve people amazingly well. And when I first read your question, Willie, I was thinking back to one of the first organizations I worked for professionally. We had a lot of rules and incentives in the organization, and that organization doesn't exist anymore today. And I think one of the reasons is because um, our organization got too tied into the rules and procedures on things and didn't really think sometimes of the bigger picture of why are we here to serve people? What are we ultimately trying to do? So um, I would recommend going back, listening to that conversation I had with Barry, checking out his TED Talk, and then, the, and then doing some thinking of what are the rules and incentives we need, and then where are times that an exception can be an exception. I think Bonnie's advice on tracking things and figuring out you know, what, what comes up, what doesn't, is a great starting point for figuring that out. Okay, so the next question here is from Simon. Simon says, I'm a down under in Australia. Love your show and your podcast is a staple in my professional life as a manager and customer facing people in the software industry. Well, thank you, Simon. Um, I'd like to ask if you could dedicate some time in your podcast schedule to explore accountability. It is common these days to hear the words empowerment and accountability in the same sentence, and I use them often. The empowerment side of the coin is straightforward. Uh, do what you need to do. Uh, well, I'm not sure it's that quite that straightforward, but uh, I'll, I'll take your word for it. Um, I'm work. I'm looking for ideas on the accountability piece. Is this a stick carrot mentality? And how have you seen people make accountability mean something that people don't just pay lip service to? Uh, thank you for the question, Simon. I appreciate it very much. And when I think of accountability, I think back to what I learned from a coach that I worked with probably seven, eight, nine years ago when I was um, going through coach training and getting some direction on how to coach managers. And one of the things that I remember her saying is she said, a lot of leaders run into this challenge with keeping people accountable. And she suggested to me, and I have found this to be really helpful over the years, is a three-step process for accountability of, of following these steps and then following these steps and then actually putting them into action. And the three steps are communicate, follow-up, and consequence. Um, and so what I mean by that is, number one, have the expectations for what it is you're holding someone to be accountable for, have those been clearly communicated to the other party? A lot of times they either aren't clearly communicated or they aren't communicated hardly at all. So, ex so communication being first and foremost. Secondly, that there's some sort of follow-up that happens to make sure that those expectations that have been communicated are being followed through on. So is there a regular um, time that there's a check-in? Is there a project plan? Is there a time that everyone's you know sitting down and doing a review? And then third and finally, is there some sort of consequence to those actions. And I use the term consequence broadly, as did she. And consequence doesn't just mean like, okay, there's a negative consequence. There could be a positive consequence too. So someone is meeting expectations or above them that there's some positive consequence that happens um, either formally or informally as far as recognition or responsibility. But that those three things are essential in accountability. And I've run into many, many situations where those first two steps are skipped or not done very well, that expectations aren't clear, and the follow-up isn't done. And then all of a sudden, people are jumping forward to consequences or someone gets 
a lot of feedback on an annual review six months or 12 months after there's been an issue or gets removed from a position and never had the opportunity to really do anything different and never really even knew where they were starting from in some cases. And so I think that that's anytime you surprise someone in that way, I think that that's, um, I think that should never be a surprise because there should be good communication and follow up all along. Bonnie, what uh, what do you have to add to that or potentially disagree with? <laughs> <laughs> we haven't had that yet in this show. We haven't. It's coming, I'm sure. In my experience, people don't want to do a bad job. They want to do a good job. They want yeah. to do what it is that they say they do. And there are a few ways that I see this coming up that we can get ourselves into trouble as leaders. One is that as leaders, sometimes we can focus way more on the how something's going to get done than on the what actually needs to get done and why it needs to get done. So as leaders, I think about us, let's focus more on what exactly, what's the measurable outcomes that we're looking to achieve with whatever the the bigger picture is and why is that important? How does that connect with the company's larger goals, the company's mission? And we need to focus less on the how. When we focus too much on the how and we start driving down exactly what needs to happen, then sometimes we we lose sight of just the value that that person might be able to bring to the process. Perhaps their style, their personality, their strengths might lend to even better results than the way we're recommending. It also just takes a lot of time and really takes the fun out of it for the person that you're delegating something to. Now, am I saying that's appropriate in every situation? Absolutely not. The need for consistency is present in many jobs. I think about some of our listeners I know are in the medical profession. And when I think about the times I, with my first pregnancy, I had two different one week stays in the hospital. (laughs) And then with the second pregnancy, fortunately got to miss all that and just stay in the hospital after having our sweet little daughter. But there was some inconsistencies that I saw in that organization. And in particular, not using the technology that they had in front of them. They had sort of a dual system where, yeah, I had to put this certain stuff into the, the medical system that was in the hospital room, but they all were carrying around, not all of them. Yeah. Okay. All of them were carrying around separate notebooks and things like that. And I thought, this can't be a good thing. And it's not my area of expertise, healthcare, but it was concerning to me to think about all the opportunities for mistakes to be made there when we have dual entry systems and people kind of relying on their watches for when things had to be given to patients versus actually having a a more reliable system. And so with accountability, I I think there are going to be times when we do have to get more specific and have yeah, it has to happen this time, this exact thing. And in that case, I think we really have to be good as leaders thinking about what kinds of systems would help everyone's attention be attuned to this. A lot of us aren't very, by the way, I I wouldn't necessarily include myself in this because that's my whole thing. Dave and I are very committed to the idea of capturing things that need to get done and having it in a single system so that less things fall through the cracks. I like that I have a trusted system that I feel like even though that list is ever growing, (laughs) when I came down to record this afternoon, Dave said, how's your day going? Oh, I didn't check off enough of those lists as I had hoped for, but at least I know what needs to get done. So less things are apt to fall through the cracks. So what kinds of systems can we put together where everyone knows what's expected of each other. That's why these online project management systems are so great. I use an online project management system called Asana. That works really well for, in my particular case, you know, smaller 
groups of people because I can use the free version, but it scales up with some of their paid models to really large organizations too. And I'm using another tool called Slack and Slack integrates with Asana. So Asana is the project management system that says, here are the different things that need to get done. Here are the people who are accountable to it. Here's the due dates for these particular tasks. But then as we're brainstorming about stuff or posting files or commenting on stuff, there's the Slack, which is a like a combination of file sharing, text messages, but it's got different channels. So I can have just really hone in on the people that need to know about this particular conversation we're having around something. So that's the, that's the piece about accountability there. And the other thing I would just end with is that there are times in our leadership communication where we need to be careful to distinguish between when we're just brainstorming about things and what we're actually delegating. Because there are those times when we might just, I mean, for me, I have ideas all the time. And so I might be thinking about, hey, we could do this or we could try this. And the person that's listening to me, depending on their personality type, might decide to filter out everything that I'm saying and then miss the stuff that I really essentially needed to get done. Or if they tend to be more detail oriented or more people pleasing or what have you, thinking that every single thing coming out of my mouth needs to get acted on and then just getting completely overwhelmed and losing sight of what really was essential in the conversation. So I need to be clear and, 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 and distinctive about what, what kind of things are just brainstorms and invite that person to be brainstorming with me and not feel like they're going to walk out of my office every single time with a laundry list of not fun stuff to do to execute on something that might not next week sound like such a good idea. Oh, I, I love that. And I've, I've definitely had leaders say to me, I've, I've learned in a leadership role that I can't just start brainstorming out loud without telling people that because all of a sudden I send people on two-week adventures and then they come back with this whole, here's what I found. And they had no intention of ever delegating that. So that's a key, key point. And I agree with everything else you said. Awesome. All right. Let's get our next question here from Valerie. Valerie says, my current setup is to act as a consultant working for a large training firm. It's a good setup as consultants do not have to worry about uh, the aspect of um, prospecting and just providing the training. On the other hand, it can be frustrating because they are not, uh, quote unquote, my customers. And my, by mean, he means uh, having his own business. My setup is good and I can live decently from it, but I'm looking for creating a company based on my areas of expertise, which is sales, consulting, and coaching. I have this inner voice telling me, Valerie, it's going to be the right direction. But what are the steps now? There are a few companies out there providing the same expertise, but the addressable market is very large. Are there any prerequisites such as raising funds to invest in technology or people? How should I consider the transition between my current setup as a consultant and the entrepreneurial one? Are there new forms of associations I should think of? Uh, for example, approaching a consulting company or offering to develop an activity in a sales department that I'd personally own from an equity standpoint. So it sounds like he's doing a lot of thinking about different ways he could start his own venture and start his own business, Bonnie. Um, and you and I have both done this because we've done consulting and we've also both worked for other organizations and employers while we've done that. So it's kind of a, we have sort of a unique situation. Um, I have some thoughts here. I'm wondering what uh, you, you want me to start. Okay. So I guess... By the way, do you know that this is a man who wrote to you? I do. Okay. Because <laughs> Valerie could be a man or a woman. I, I am not going to say what part of the world, uh, just because I'm not sure how much he wanted the details broadcast. Yeah. But um, but yes, he is. He is, he is a guy. Um, so thanks, Valerie, for this question. And yeah, so I guess my thought here is that you're in a really good place 
Because not everyone who's thinking about starting a business is in a good place. And by that, I mean people start businesses for all kinds of good and bad reasons. Um, and some of the the difficult places to be are having lost a job, having had an industry change around you, um, having something change in your family, uh, having a bad financial situation come about. Those are all reasons people need to do something new or start a business. And those can be very, very difficult situations to start a business. And you are, uh, sounds like pretty happy with what you're doing and sounds like it's going fairly well. So you don't have to do anything different. And I think that you could make that work to your advantage of, um, I wonder what you could do now while you're doing this work that you could test some things out and to start going out there and maybe doing a little bit of consulting and to test a few ideas. Um, and just one of the things that's become really popular, well, I shouldn't say it's become really popular, but I think one really good model for doing this is just to start thinking about who's the audience that you want to serve and how can you start building a following and serving an audience out there who would need something that you can provide. So would there be a way that you could start a blog or a podcast or to write a book or to um, or to have some way where you start to attract a following of people that are engaged with you, that like and trust you, and that you can start to also discover how you best serve people. Um, because starting a business is a big investment of time and resources, but if you already have a following of people that know, like, and trust you, and you've done a lot to think through what you would provide to them and you've had dialogue with them, then I think you 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 potentially start a business or at least do some some work around a, what we might call a hobby if you're not even doing it as a serious business where it's it's really much less risky than it would be if you just went off on your own and started seeking investors and i i think that that's one of the things that isn't talked about enough bonnie in business circles is you see all these shows and in the states here there's a, a popular show i've never seen it's called the shark tank mm -hmm. and the startup yeah. podcast is really popular and everyone um, you know, there's kind of this belief that, okay, I need to just have the right idea and then go out and get funding for it. And there are certainly very successful companies that start off that way. But that is a really stressful thing to do, and it's very hard to get funding. And, and even if you do it well and do it successfully, um, that's a very difficult place to be because then you have someone you report to. I mean, investors are essentially your boss. So you're not, it's not really your company if you have a ton of investors who've invested money because they now have equity in your business. They're going to, some of them can be very activist and they're going to have a lot of opinions on how you're running the show. Um, if you want an example of that, just listen to the startup podcast. <laughs> they're walking through this right now, which is really interesting. So I, I think, and they're in there, by the way, doing it, um, they've had amazing success and still they're struggling with a lot of that. So I think that's the kind of thing that, um, you know, if you can start a business where you own it and you just build it from the ground up, I think that's great in the long run, especially if you don't have to, you don't have an accelerated timeline that you have to be on. Bonnie, anything that you're thinking about in relation to that? A couple of other ways you could dip your toe in it would be to consider serving on a nonprofit board and, and helping guide that way, or even volunteering at a nonprofit. Of course, nonprofits definitely have a need for fundraising and it isn't always something that they're particularly good at. So if you were able to, on a volunteer basis, work with whoever it is that's responsible for development, raising those funds, 
and using some of your scale skills, it would be a way for you to get some of that more entrepreneurial sense without actually having to go all the way. And I guess the other thing was in, in your message, I'll just say from what you wrote, I just would wonder why you might perceive that you need to go start your own business. Cause I, I also think there's a lot of value in working in organizations and that owning your own business and having that kind of fluctuation in your income and instability isn't for everyone. And I don't, so I guess that was just, the, that was just my thought is I, I would really wrestle with if that's what you truly want to do. And that's just, you have huge passion around it, or if that's what you think you're supposed to do. Mm. And there's so many more organizations these days that are recognizing the value of what the term is entrepreneurship of hiring people who are really thinking innovatively and give them, giving them a lot of opportunity to be innovative and creative in building things. So if that's your drive for it, there may be an organization that allows you that opportunity to do that. Well, for sure, there's an organization that allows that. And you might get a lot of those, get a lot of that need, that drive met, um, but not assume the same amount of risk. So yeah, lots of, lots of things to think about around that. I hope we've been helpful to you in that in some way, Valerie, of uh, thinking through options for that. Um, by the way, if um, one resource for people, the, the Coaching for Leaders community, this show has been very much built on the philosophy of just going out and serving people and helping people and building the community. And so many of you have been a big part of that. And um, the business term for building a community is uh, content marketing of going out and just building things that would be valuable to people and attracting an audience. And a great resource for not only in the written word, but through podcasts is an organization called Copy Blogger that's based here in the States. So if you're looking for a resource that can help you to learn the business skills on how to do that and to really approach the world from that mentality, I definitely would recommend Copy Blogger, and I'll put a link to that in the show notes. All right, and so I think our final question here is going to be from Howie, and this one's an audio question. Here we go. Hi, Dave. My name is Howie, and I am calling you from Saigon, Vietnam. And today I've got a question about coaching across uh, language and culture. So I am here coaching doctors and hospital staff, and uh, I'm running into two uh, issues. The first one is language. Uh, most of my coaches are not fluent in English, so they have um, they have trouble or they get tired after talking uh, for two or three minutes at a time. Uh, and then the second uh, issue is, I think, related to culture because um, things like uh, therapy and coaching and counseling do not really exist here. And so they have a bit of trouble opening up in a professional setting. So I'm just wondering what uh, recommendations you have. And I look forward to uh, hearing your response in an upcoming episode. Thanks, Dave. Hey, Howie, thanks so much for the question. Man, tough situation. Um, and particularly working cross-culturally, this is, this is a real challenge because People approach learning differently in different cultures. And so a couple of things that come to mind is, one is, um, and I'd, I'd love to know more, and maybe we can talk a little more offline, um, but some of the things I think anyone should think about in this is, are you doing this yourself or is this a larger organization doing the coaching? And the reason I ask that is because I'm wondering uh, if you're really running into these obstacles with the language barrier is... Would it be possible for someone to engage with people and to coach them who speak the same language and are from the same culture? 
Uh, is it essential that it has to be you or other people that are speaking English or can there, is there an option for that to happen? And, and I, I, you know, I don't know the details of the situation. Maybe that isn't practical for whatever reason, but, um, and you've probably already thought about this, but whatever you can do to learn about the culture, to maybe even learn a little bit of the language, it's not going to resolve the situation, but it can go a long way in demonstrating to people that you're taking the time to really care about engaging with them and meeting them where they are. Because both of these issues you've talked about um, are, not, are not their issue, they're your issue. If, if you're not meeting them on where they're at, and I don't mean you personally, Howie, I mean you know your organization and just the business setup of how do I, if I'm coaching someone, I need to really meet them where they are. And that means I need to meet them with their language, with their culture, with the format that they prefer as far as learning. And it doesn't mean we won't challenge people, but we have to first meet them where they are and then bring them along and then and encourage them to, you know, move with us and encourage them to move forward with us, but we first have to meet them there. So that's that's one thing that for sure comes uh, comes to my mind. And then the second thing is as far as the medium of coaching, um, I'm not familiar with the Vietnamese culture very much at all, but if that's not a dynamic, if that's not a, a way of interacting that is readily accepted, one of the first questions I would wonder is what is? So what are doctors doing in Vietnam in order to enhance their professional development. And I know at least here in the States, a lot of physicians, lawyers, people in, you know, in, in the professional fields tend to like to learn from other people who are in that field. So physicians like to learn from physicians, lawyers tend to like to learn from lawyers. So I'm wondering what the dynamics are there in Vietnam of how do doctors learn now and how can you or your organization uh, align with what's currently working and what's currently accepted and to show up there, whether that's in a lecture format or workshop or training or however that's done, and how can you engage there strategically in order to do real work? Now, again, that may not be possible based on your situation, but to the extent you can do that, even in an informal way, I think would probably take you a long ways. Bonnie, anything to add? To that? One of the two biggest cultural differences that I see between many of our Asian countries and America, for example, is the difference between individualism being really honored and respected in the States and collectivism being more honored and respected in many of our Asian countries. Yes, And so that's one of the things to be considering that a lot more of your conversations might be less about that person's achievement of goals and more around what would be good for the whole of the people that are served and, and mm. the, the collective mission and goals of the hospital as, as a whole. Good and point. then the other big difference, culturally speaking, is the difference between more of a direct style of communication. So in this, in the States, you might find more direct communication and more of an indirect style of communication in many of our Asian cultures. So in that particular case, sometimes I find it helpful to join them, as Dave said, in that indirectness and almost set the thing that we're talking about, the issue we're talking about, or the place that we're talking about a little bit apart from ourselves and almost try to look at it as if we were watching a movie of it, but then it makes it a little bit less personal and try not to speak directly to you. Have you done this? Have you done this? But has this happened here? So we're sort of, I, I just, it's hard to explain other than I just get myself in a different mode than my default mode. And I, I try to be indirect with them and really hone in on my intuition to say, not just what is being said, 
what is not being said. Mm. And what is not being said, in my experience, has been more important in the conversation for me to listen to than what actually is said. And especially when there is evidence of something being different than what is being described to me, I, I tend to have to place more credence on the evidence that I have than what this person is telling me. And, and, and of course, that's different. It's one of those things when you think about perception, perception is reality. So if you're telling me this is how you're experiencing it, then I need to believe that because for me to be an effective coach for you, then I'm going to need to be able to walk in those shoes kind of with you to understand what you're experiencing. But so much in that culture, it's just not socially acceptable to state what they're really experiencing. So that's why I have to go off of that evidence and try to ha- have them help describe it to me. But from that distance position, I might get a more clearer picture Mm. than if we put them in that picture with it and it starts to get really personal for them. The other thing that I think you probably already have thought about, but I understand about those words not being really comfortable coaching or therapy, that kind of thing. If it's not comfortable, can we find a better, more socially accepted word to describe the function it is that you're going to be performing? Uh, great advice. Fabulous. And uh, one other resource I'll suggest for you, Howie, is that my friend Tom Henschel and I, uh, he's from the Look and Sound of Leadership podcast. We just recorded an episode that's going to air here in a couple weeks on this show on how to coach people. And some of his analogies he uses were so helpful to me in thinking about what the question here you've asked and, and thinking about coaching in general. So definitely check that out when it comes out here in a few weeks. Bonnie, that brings us to the end of the questions, and I feel like we should have disagreed more. I feel like we're letting people <laughs> down somehow. You know, there's something you want to fight about? Is there something going on at home or with the kids that we should uh, we should go at it on? Well, we on can the revisit the therapy versus coaching issue <laughs> oh, that we no, debated about. That. Was that last time or the time before? But I found out from you actually that I was right and yes. you were wrong. So there's really nothing to continue to hash out. Did you so. like how I just you know Dale Carnegie said, "When you're wrong, admit it quickly and emphatically," yeah. and I even right on that show at the end. I just said, I'm wrong. Here no, but you found out even more later on how wrong you were. It, it, like, and you didn't have a follow-up show to... to yeah. yeah. Well, I <laughs> no think tweets, I, No tweets were made, I don't think. <laughs> all right, watch on Twitter for me saying how wrong I was. <laughs> and how right I am. As always, a huge thank you to Bonnie for joining me on this episode, and I hope that you'll join the conversation too, especially if you have thoughts or resources, or maybe even think differently on our responses and would like to join the conversation, please do so at coachingforleaders.com slash 187. That'll take you to all the questions and links and resources we mentioned in the show, but more importantly, it'll give you a place where you can join the conversation too. And I hope you'll uh, consider submitting a question for our next Q&A show, the first Monday of the month. And you can do that by going to coachingforleaders.com slash feedback. And the next Q&A show is going to be episode number 191. And the topic for that show is going to be books. <laughs> if you've listened to the show for a while, you know I'm a fan of books, uh, new books, old books. Uh, all kinds of books in order to help us to become more effective as leaders. And there's so many resources out there. And so anything around books, fair game, uh, what books should you be reading? What's a book on a specific topic? What are our favorites? Of course, I've got my top 10 list that many of you have, um, but there's a lot more books and resources there in addition. 
uh, how I, how we read, what do we recommend, anything related to books, reading, learning, all fair game for that episode. So again, coachingforleaders.com slash feedback. And of course, other topics are always welcome too. And just a reminder that the new resources page is up and running. I'm adding to it every single week now and going back in past episodes and adding links to there. Uh, so I think I'm up to 60 or 70 resources now, just the beginning. So if that's of interest to you and you're looking for resources from topics and past shows, go to coachingforleaders.com slash resources, and you will, of course, find that link at the bottom of the weekly leadership guide for those of you who get that as well. And by the way, please join that weekly leadership guide. It comes to your email box on Wednesday and always includes my thoughts and recommendations on the best articles, podcasts, videos, and books that will support your development between the shows. And it also has an overview and link to the full weekly show notes. And like this week, <laughs> they're pretty long, so uh, always there to be helpful to you. And if you listen while you're on the go like I do, it'll help you to follow up later on the resources and links so you've got them exactly where you need them in your inbox on your computer when uh, the time's right to access that. You'll get immediate access to my reader's guide, which lists the 10 leadership books that will help you get better results from others with brief summaries from me on the value of each book. It's an 11-page guide and a nine-minute video that comes along with that. It's also a good starting point for our Q&A episode next month, uh, particularly if you have any questions on those books. A uh, great place to start, but it, like I said, anything's fair game. So you can get all of that at coachingforleaders.com slash subscribe. And thanks to all of you who are continuing to join the weekly leadership guide. It is just a thrill to be able to talk with you and dialogue with you each week. And I am thrilled to also continue to include a voice from our listening community each week. And I'm thrilled to be able to feature our member spotlight this week from Tucker Karlmark. Hello, Coaching for Leaders community. My name is Tucker Karlmark, and I work for a consumer electronics company in the greater Boston, Massachusetts area. I've been managing engineers in my current role for about the last four years and discovered the Coaching for Leaders podcast about a year and a half ago while searching for advice on leadership and management. I wanted to thank Dave and Bonnie for the content they deliver to our community every week, as it's certainly been a big help for me, although I wish I had found it a little bit earlier in my managerial journey. The thing I'd like to share with the rest of the community as far as one point that has been extremely helpful for me. All of us have to go through some type of performance review process, either with uh, providing feedback to peers or to people on our staff. And the one resource that I would really like to turn people on to is episode 143, Accepting Feedback with Sheila Heen. The Sheila Heen book on difficult conversations is one of Dave's uh, 10 recommended reads that I think has been very helpful for me. But the most impactful advice that I received from that podcast was really breaking down the different types of feedback that are clarifying, especially when giving to people as part of a performance review. And I think it's nice to distinguish for the people you work with and are giving performance feedback on to have that distinction between what feedback is actually appreciation, what is coaching, and what is evaluation. I found that very helpful to make it so that whatever advice that I'm giving someone is much more clarifying in terms of how they can receive it and work with it.
Thank you, Dave and Bonnie, for all that you do, and I'll be listening every week. Take care. Tucker, a big thank you for taking the time to record the spotlight and for suggesting episode 143. That was also one of my favorite episodes from last year, actually. I loved getting to talk to Sheila. And the great thing about the new book they have out and that episode is you hear so much on how to give feedback, but you don't hear much on how to accept feedback. And that's what we really talked about in that episode. And there's so much value there. And Tucker, those three things, I'm so glad you mentioned because I had I'd actually forgotten about that piece of the conversation. So thanks for doing that. And thanks for being a great supporter of the show. Hey, would you like to be featured as a member spotlight as well at the end of a future episode? Check it out at coachingforleaders.com slash spotlight and you'll learn more. Have a great week and I look forward to talking with you next week. Take care.